Hi, this is Art Wright, and I'm the pastor at Williamsburg Baptist Church, and we're so glad you're listening to our podcast. We are moving through a very meaningful season of Epiphany together uh, as we move into the calendar year 2023. And um, this is week six of Epiphany. The scripture text comes from Matthew chapter 13. It is verses 24 through 35, three parables of the kingdom um, in which Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a, uh, a field planted with wheat and weeds and a mustard seed that grows into a grand shrub and a, a woman who um, mixes yeast or what we would think of as sourdough starter into um, a huge, tremendous volume of flour um, so that it begins to rise. And so hope that this um, sermon is helpful for you in your spiritual journey. Um, we uh, certainly, if you would like to find out more about what is going on in the life of our congregation, you can head over to williamsburgbaptist.com or check us out on Instagram or Facebook. You can also email me directly at, po- at <laughs> podcast, nope, pastor at williamsburgbaptist.com. Would love to hear from you just to say hi or if you've got prayer concerns that you'd like to share, or if you'd like to find out more about our congregation. Um, we really are excited in this season of life. Uh, we find that um, God's Spirit is moving among us in ways that we could not have anticipated, but we're growing and excited uh, about the ways in which God is calling us to be church together in this season of life, and it really is exciting, and we're so glad that you're a part of it. Um, next Sunday, um, February 19th, is Transfiguration Sunday. It's the culmination of the Epiphany season. And then beyond that, we move into Lent, um, the season that precedes Holy Week and Easter. would love for you to consider joining us um, on uh, February 22nd uh, at noon in our South Wing for an Ash Wednesday luncheon. And, uh, and then the following Sunday as we move into the Lenten season together. Anyway, so glad you're listening. Hope this sermon is helpful to you. God bless. Thanks, Paul. Will y'all pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Amen. 9 a.m. Monday morning, this past Monday, I had this sermon all figured out. I should have quit while I was ahead. Most of you probably don't know know this, but I usually start preparing for next Sunday's sermon on Monday morning. So I'll start preparing for next Sunday, tomorrow morning, first thing. What I do is I hop in the car and turn, there's a sermon brainstorming podcast that follows the narrative lectionary. And so I just turn that on and listen to it on my drive and start to take notes. And, uh, you know, and then uh, I set it aside and then the ideas start to percolate throughout the week. Writing a sermon is a lot like brewing a good cup of coffee. It has to percolate for a little while on the inside. At some point in the week, I usually consult some books or articles on the scripture passage, and then I try to carve out some dedicated time to actually start to put words on a page. Uh, On a good week, that's Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. On a bad week, that's Saturday night at 9 p.m. 
<laughs> Someone asked me recently how long it takes me to prepare a sermon each week, and I'm going to guess it takes me probably six to eight hours per week, if you're curious. That's, I asked a couple other friends, and that seems pretty typical for them, too, but a lot gets left on the cutting room floor each week, too. And so Monday morning this past week, I listened to my podcast and thought, oh, this is going to be easy, no sweat. And I was so excited, I got to the office, I raced up to the stairs to my, off, my office, started pulling books off the shelves so I could check and see what they said about these three parables, and then it all just fell apart. Parables are tricky. You think you have them figured out, and then you look at them from a different angle and they reveal something entirely new to you. And I think that's part of their brilliance and part of why Jesus used them in his teaching. If you want to teach one crystal clear thing or make one obvious theological point or drive home an answer to a question, you can just say what you want to say. You can make a PowerPoint if you want. But Jesus, throughout his ministry, chose to tell stories. And stories open up possibilities. His parables resist our desire to boil them down to one easy-to-digest point or one simple three-bullet-point sermon. They make you sit with them and roll them around in your head and in your spirit. They ask you to inhabit the stories, to find yourself in them, and then find yourself again from a different perspective, again and again. Am I a wheat? Am I a weed? Am I the person who plants wheat? Am I an old woman, or the yeast, or the mustard seed, or the birds who come and nest in the shrub? Maybe I'm all of those at various points in my life. If you think there's one obvious interpretation to a parable, I'm sorry to say this, but you're probably reading it wrong. And if you want a nice, clean answer from Jesus, don't read the parables. Today's scripture reading just so happens to feature three parables about the kingdom of heaven. And so as disappointed as I was, it was no surprise to me when all of my brilliant plans for a sermon fell apart by 10 a.m. on Monday morning. Parable 1. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to someone who sows wheat in his field, and then someone comes and plants weeds in it at night. Who knows why? When the the seeds sprout, the servant's masters are distressed, and they ask him if he wants them to go pull out all of the weeds. No, no, he says, you won't be able to tell which is which. When they're just sprouts, they look too similar. And by the time you can tell them apart, pulling the weeds out will damage the wheat too. And so, just let them grow. Wheat and weeds side by side. Tend the fields, fertilize them, and let wheat and weeds grow and flourish together. And when the time comes for the harvest, the harvesters will collect the wheat into the barn. And then you know what we'll do? We'll get them to bundle the weeds together and make good use out of them too. We can burn them as fuel. Even the weeds will have a purpose. So let them grow. As much as some of us might like to think so, this isn't a hellfire and brimstone moment in today's text. Nothing is lost or wasted in God's economy, not even weeds. Parable 2, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that is planted. It begins as the smallest of seeds, but it grows into the greatest of shrubs. Maybe not as majestic, say, as a great oak or one of the cedars of Lebanon. But in its branches, birds come to find refuge and comfort and a home. It nurtures life. It is life-giving. Parable 3. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. Actually, in antiquity, it's probably more like we would think of sourdough starter today. It's a little bit slimy and smells kind of funny. There aren't those easy-to-use little red yeast packets in first century Galilee, I guess you know. But a woman takes this yeast and mixes it into three measures of flour. The Greek word, curiously enough, says that she hides it in the flour. It's hidden. But even though others can't see that it's there, it transforms the whole thing from the inside out. The yeast breathes and begins to make the bread come alive. This woman gives life to bread, the yeast gives life to bread, and then it will be nourishing to all who share in it. And it is a feast. Three measures is not three cups, folks. It's closer to ten gallons of flour. Her arms are going to be sore from kneading so much bread for tomorrow, by tomorrow. It's enough bread to feed at least 100 or 150 people. The kingdom of heaven is like a field of wheat and weeds. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that grows into a grand shrub. The kingdom of heaven is like sourdough starter. Is it clear, crystal clear yet, what the kingdom of heaven is like? I hope not. Because we're supposed to sit with these stories and wrestle with the imagery. If Jesus gave his followers three easy bullet points, they'd forget them by the time they got home and turned on the football game. So he gives us stories instead, because stories stick with us. But there's a contrast that we often miss in this story. Let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. The Basileia of heaven, kingdom, empire of heaven. Let me draw a contrast for you between the kingdom, the empire of heaven, and the other empire that we all inhabit, Rome. There's only one empire in the world, right? Everybody knows it in Jesus' time. It's Rome. It's a global empire. And everyone knows what Rome's kingdom or empire is like, do they not? Rome is hierarchical and patriarchal. The wealthy few enjoy all of the benefits while the masses of people struggle to get by. Rome is oppressive and enslaving, far from egalitarian. Rome believes that bigger is better and war and conquest will give the wealthy elite more land and more money. Rome's kingdom is violent and aggressive with its legions of soldiers stationed around the perimeter of the empire. Food in the Roman Empire is scarce and hunger and sickness are rampant. Your value in the kingdom or empire of Rome is based on how much you can produce and contribute, how good your grades are, 
or what your fancy job title sounds like. You have no inherent worth, though. Rome creates insiders and outsiders. It's exclusive and intolerant and demands conformity and allegiance. Roman propaganda will tell you that Rome's rule is good for all, but it's not true. Their rule is fear-based. If you get out of line, they will send their armies to crush you and crucify your leaders. It's heavy stuff. So allow me a moment of levity. Frank Milam, here's your Super Bowl reference. This is true. When Rome's legions march into battle, they carry standards, flags, bearing the image of, you guessed it, an eagle. So cheer accordingly tonight. (laughs) You don't want to cheer for Rome, right? (laughs) This is the world that Jesus and his earliest followers lived in. They lived under the thumb of the Roman emperor and the ruling elite. And the good news of Rome's kingdom has very little good news to say to peasants and fishermen and ordinary households in Galilee. But Jesus asks his followers to open their eyes to see an alternative kingdom, an alternative empire that is even now in their midst. This is the empire of heaven. This is God's empire. It is benevolent toward all and open to all and accepting of all, especially the people you'd least expect, tax collectors and sinners alike. In God's empire, there's a place for all at the table, and there's more than enough to go around. It is radically inclusive and believes that each person is of infinite worth for the simple reason that they, too, bear the image of God. The empire of heaven is generous and merciful to all. Its followers do unto others as they'd have done to themselves. God's empire is not hierarchical and asks us to see one another not as competition with one another in a zero-sum game, but rather as siblings and community together. It is a grassroots kingdom that believes that the last shall be first, and those who serve are the greatest among us, and that everyone has something to contribute to the divine movement of love in the world. It is a beloved community of people who see the best in each other, who care deeply about one another, and who seek to lift up the least, the last, and the lost. God's kingdom is nonviolent and asks us to be peacemakers. It reaches across the aisle to show love to enemy and neighbor alike. It advocates for compassion and kindness and human flourishing for all. It's a shrub that will grow to be something unexpectedly grand. It is a mustard seed revolution planted in the midst of Rome's empire and that continues growing in the midst of every empire since. It starts small, but it keeps growing bigger and ultimately will be the source of life for all people. Birds, wheat, even the weeds. You want to know what the empire of heaven is like? It's nothing short of revolutionary for this world. One of the great tragedies of history, 
unfortunately, is that the Christian church has resembled the empire of Rome more often than the empire of heaven. We have Constantine, who we talked about in Sunday school this morning, to thank in part for that. Emperor Constantine, who married the church to the state in the 4th century, who weaponized the church in the service of the Roman Empire. Thanks be to God, the church is not a one-to-one equivalent to the kingdom of heaven. The church is not the kingdom. But we who follow Jesus within the church are called to bring about God's kingdom here on earth. We pray for it every week. We pray for it just moments ago. Your kingdom, your empire come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The question before us, as people who claim to be Jesus' followers, is which kingdom, which empire will we be a part of? Rome's? Or God's empire? Maybe God's empire is like a field filled with wheat and weeds alike. And lo and behold, the landowner is going to tend the fields and fertilize them and let them all grow together and find a divine purpose for them all, wheat and weeds alike. And maybe our job is not to figure out who's good and who's bad, and we'll just let God sort that out. And we'll just help everyone flourish. Maybe God's empire is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds that grows up to provide shelter and refuge and life for the birds of the air. Maybe God is like a middle-aged woman who's working sourdough starter through the whole batch of the world's flour. Maybe we are that sourdough starter, and maybe we smell a little funky, but we are going to leaven the entire world with God's love and purposes and joy and peace and radical inclusion. And Morgan, it will be a revival. And maybe even when the world is so fraught with death, we will be sustenance and life for all. You, know, you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like? Let me tell you a story. Amen.